0: Please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Last week, we began studying the doctrine of divine election as Paul unfolds it for us in Ephesians 1, and we learned two things about election. First, the decisive choice in salvation doesn't come down to how each individual sinner chooses. Left to themselves, no one would choose God. The decisive choice for salvation comes down to God's choice made in eternity past to adopt sons and daughters for Himself and give them the gifts of repentance and faith. And second, we learned that God's choice in eternity past wasn't based on any good trait uh, in the people whom He chose. Uh, we were just as sinful as the rest of humanity, and God didn't choose us on, because of some kind of good trait He saw in us or based on foreseen faith. Uh, Um, He predestined and foreloved uh, people to salvation, and His foreknowledge that we looked at in Romans 8 was a foreloving and a forechoosing. His choice of us was not conditioned, therefore, on anything good in us or uh, on some decision He foresaw us making. So, in a sense, we could say, his selection was unconditional. At least it was unconditional based on what he saw in us. Now, there's one more feature of election that Paul unfolds for us in Ephesians 1 verses 3 through 6, but I'm not going to preach it today. I'll get to it next Sunday. And the reason why is because what I want to do today is answer some questions that this doctrine of election brings up in every thinking Christian's mind. For example, on what basis… Did God choose those whom He chose? If the reason is in Him, and it's not because He saw something good in us or foresaw us practicing faith, uh, then what was it in Him that led Him to make the choice He made? And I began to actually answer that question just briefly last week. I said that it was based on God's love, but we need to say a little bit more. There's more this text reveals about what was in God's heart and mind and why He chose those whom He chose. Let's look again at Ephesians 1, starting in verse 3, "'Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world.'" Now, if you stop there, and if you can take Paul at face value and believe that God chose people unto salvation before the foundation of the world, one of the obvious questions it raises is, Well, why did God choose those whom He chose? And coming right off the heels of talking about God's choosing, it would be the perfect time to talk about why He chose. Look again at verse 4, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, so that we would be holy and blameless before Him. Paul could have answered the why question there, but instead of explaining the why question, he explains the for what purpose. What was God's long-term goal in selecting those He selected? Well, in verse 4, it's so that they would become holy and blameless before Him. Look at verse 5. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself. So in verse 5, the purpose for which He selected those whom He selected is so that they could become His own sons and daughters. He chose them for Himself. Verse 6 has yet another purpose. Uh, Verse uh, 6, He chose uh, us… He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will, verse 6, to the praise of the glory of His grace. He also chose us because freely setting His love on us would bring about a result where He received praise and glory from us for how gracious He is, how good He's been to us. So, let me begin answering the question of why God chose by just making this simple observation. It seems to me that Paul is deflecting our attention away from figuring that out to highlight more the goals God had for those whom He chose, and we're going to be talking about those next week because I want to make sure I emphasize what the authors of Scripture emphasize. But even though Paul does that, there still is a sense in which if you slow down and you examine the very words of this passage carefully, you actually find more information about why God chose those whom He chose. Uh, You can begin to see reasons back in verse 4. In love He predestined us according to the kind intention of His will. Uh, You could translate kind intention there as good pleasure. Uh, So, you could say just in verses 4 and 5, He chose us because He loved the ones He chose, He chose because it was according to His good pleasure. It was a decision He took pleasure in doing. He wasn't obligated to do it. He liked doing it. Why did He do it? Because He wanted to do it. It was according to His will. That gives us some clues, but there's even more reasons if you skip down to verses 9 through 11. Look at verses 9 through 11. He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His kind intention which He purposed in Him. So, now we have purpose… Uh, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In Him also we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will. So, what you have there then is a cluster of words that tell us what was in God's heart. Uh, up Earlier in the passage, in verses 4 and 5, you see his love, you see his will, you see his kind intention. Those are basically repeated here. But in verse 9, you also see his purpose. And in verse 11, probably most importantly, verse 11, you see that it was according to his counsel. So what do these words add up to? Well, God's will is his self originating purpose, his kind intention or good pleasure is His unconstrained, unmanipulated, uninfluenced free will. And it is a good free will. He is glad to decide what He decided. And speaking of His good pleasure and the good pleasure of His free will, I would add that I find it a little bit baffling that people who defend human free will so boldly won't allow some free will for God. Hey, like, Why shouldn't God be free to choose those whom He wants to choose to adopt as His own? Uh, and that He chose uh, those who are His own was something that He did according to His own counsel, verse 11. Counsel communicates that this was a wise, well-thought-out plan in the mind of God. He did it according to His all-wise counsel, and that it was according to His purpose means He has good goals for it and He gets it done. He always accomplishes what He purposes. So, if we sum up all of those words and we put them together then, this is the picture it paints. Uh, Why did God choose us who are in Christ? Well, the answer isn't within us, it's to be found in God, and it's because of God's love. The rock-bottom answer is of why He chose those whom He chose is because He loved them. But we can go beyond that and say, not only did He love them, He willed to choose them, and it was His free choice to do so, and He was glad to do it. It was His good pleasure to do it. He was happy. You could say, well, why did God do it? One answer would be, because he wanted to do it. He, he liked doing it. He took pleasure in doing it, and also because his choice to do it this way and to choose those whom he chose was well-considered and wise. It was according to his own counsel, which means two things. First of all, His counsel wasn't arbitrary. I mean, his choice wasn't arbitrary. It wasn't like an arbitrary thing. Uh, Another word we could use is random. It wasn't a random thing or an arbitrary thing on God's part. And second, he's he's not going to say, more than that. And so, you are going to have to trust Him. So, if me uh, digging down and hitting bedrock when we talk about His own counsel, if that still doesn't do it for you, I'm sorry, I can't go any further, right? That's the best I can come up with. That's the, I, I tried, I tried. I dug in Scripture. I beat on the Apostle Paul asking him to give me a good answer, and that's as far as I got. And one of the reasons I can't give you a more specific answer than that, you want to know why? Because I'm the pot, not the potter. He's the potter. He made the clay. He revealed this to us. And uh, when you get to rock bottom, I would say it's His love, and it's because this happened according to His counsel, which means we're going to have to trust Him on it. We're going to have to trust Him for setting it up this way, and we're going to have to trust that He made a wise choice in choosing those whom He chose. Now, there's another question we need to ask and answer uh, in order to comprehend this doctrine of divine election, and it's this one. Does God have two wills. Now, let me explain this. Does God have two wills is not the intuitive question that you would answer next, uh, that you would ask next, but it's one we have to ask and answer, and not just for the doctrine of election. There's a whole bunch of other doctrines that aren't controversial, that Christians aren't arguing over, that you also need the two wills of God for. In fact, before I get into explaining the two wills of God, I would say this. Christians disagree on how to understand this idea of divine election people on all sides, Calvinist or Arminian, they all believe God has two wills. We disagree on which wills came into play in the plan of salvation, but we all agree that God does have two wills. So, let me, let me explain this and illustrate it for you. Why am I asking, does God have two wills? Well, it's for this reason. On the one hand, God clearly chose some people for salvation from eternity past. That's what Ephesians 1.4 says. But on the other hand, 1 Timothy 2.4 teaches that God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. 2 Peter 3.9 says that He is not wishing, or you could also translate it willing, for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So, if repentance is the gift of God to men that Acts 11 and 2 Timothy 2 claim it is, and if God wants all people to come to repentance, why not just give the gift of repentance to all people? If He desires men to be saved and He does the choosing, why not just choose everybody? And there appears to be a conflict within the will of God. How should we understand this? Well, whenever Scripture talks about the will of God, it's referring primarily to one of two concepts. Uh, The first concept is God's moral will or His will of precept. God has given us commands that communicate His moral will for our lives. Now, we don't always obey those commands, but He has communicated His moral will for us. And then the other will that you find in Scripture is God's sovereign will or His will of decree. A perfect illustration of His will of decree would be the prophecies you read about, right? Because His prophecies come true in history, and nothing thwarts them coming to pass. And a good place in Scripture where you can see both the moral will of God and the sovereign will of God coming together, even though they would disagree about the event, coming together in harmony would be in Acts chapter 2 verse 23. I read it for you last week. Peter is addressing uh, the people of Jerusalem only weeks after Jesus had uh, been crucified and risen again, and, and he's giving them the gospel but he's confronting them because in this crowd are a lot of people who agreed with the crucifixion of Jesus. And he basically says to them, this man, Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, y'all nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And Peter's confronting him. But notice what's happening there in the passage. It was God's sovereign will for Jesus to die on the cross. It was his predetermined plan. that that it would happen this way. But, just take a timeout, but what would God's moral will say about what happened on the cross? God's moral will would call it murder. And and not only was it murder, Caiaphas and the high priest plotted together to to put to death Israel's Messiah. It was was premeditated Messiah-side is what it was. And so, the moral will of God would condemn what they did, but the sovereign will of God planned it this way. Even though it was the greatest injustice in all of human history, God still predetermined it because it was the only way for Him to reconcile sinners to Himself. A a sacrifice had to be made, and so it happened according to the sovereign will of God. Um, And I think that understanding those two wills, the sovereign will and the moral will of God, honestly, I think it's easy uh, to harmonize intellectually, but I also think that we can relate to it as human beings made in the image of God. Let me give you an example. If you go on a diet that cuts out sugar, or you decide you're going to fast, you're going to do like a 24-hour fast, what's going on there? Well, you're doing something you don't desire to do to bring about a long-term benefit that you desire more. You don't desire to give up sugar or foods that taste good. You don't desire the hunger pains that are associated with fasting, and yet you do it because of the long-term benefit that that fast or cutting out some sugar is going to give you. Where Where this all relates to divine election then is that Christians, all Christians on every side of the debate are in agreement that God desires all people to be saved, that's obvious. We can also all agree that there are two wills of God. We see that in play. What we disagree on is what the other desire in God is that adds up to not all being saved. Some Christians say that the desire in God that is greater than His desire for all to be saved is that He wants to protect everyone's free will. He wouldn't ever make a choice for people because He wants the choice to reconcile with Him to be their own choice. Now, there's a functional problem with that and a theological problem. We saw last week the functional problem is that if God left people to their own free will, they would never reconcile to Him. No one left to their own free will seeks God, Romans chapter 3. The sinful nature has so corrupted the human heart that no one is able to choose God, John 6, the very choice is repulsive to them. So if anybody is going to be saved, God has to intervene directly and give them new hearts. The theological problem with understanding salvation that way is that it makes the free will of mankind the focal point of the drama of redemption. But the Bible doesn't teach that the free will of mankind is the focal point of the drama. The greater desire in God's heart is to make His glory known. That's what Romans 9.23 teaches. I'm not going to go there, but you can read it for yourself. Romans, Actually, we're going to read it a little bit later. Romans 9.23 teaches that the other desire going on in God's heart is for Him to glorify Himself, and we'll see in just a few minutes uh, how He's going to glorify Himself in that way. So, God the Father created the plan of redemption to work in this way, for His own glory." Now, with that understanding of the two wills of God in place, we're better prepared to answer some more questions, the first of which is this, well, if God actively chose some people for heaven and, and they were passively chosen, does that mean that He actively chose some people for hell? Well, the answer to that question is a profound no, but let me walk you through it, okay? Um, why, and let me use this as an illustration. Why is it that I believe in the doctrine of election as I'm explain it, explaining it to you now? Why is it that I believe this way? Is it because there's a tension between the sovereignty of God and the free will and, and responsible will of man when it comes to salvation? There's a, they're in tension. And I decided I didn't like the intellectual tension, so I chose the sovereignty of God. Uh, I chose to highlight that, to to front-end that, and I'm allowing the sovereignty of God to just steamroll over human free will. Is that what got me to the position I take now? No, absolutely not. The reason I came to the position I came to now is because when I read Romans 3, I, I don't see anybody seeking God on their own, but also because I couldn't get around words like, predestined, meaning my destiny for heaven was chosen for me before I was even born. Uh, I couldn't get around uh, words like predestined, chosen, elect, for, loved. Um, I couldn't get around those, and that's why I came to the position I've come to that I'm, that I'm preaching now. The question is this, though, when it comes to those who aren't chosen for salvation, um, were they chosen for their own destruction? Well, you will never find that those who perish in the New Testament are ever described as chosen or predestined or elect or preordained or for, uh, planned for destruction. Instead, Scripture gives another explanation. Uh, while the election of some to salvation is clearly taught in Scripture, The rest are never predestined, uh, portrayed as predestined to their doom. Instead, a different explanation is given. Turn over to Romans chapter 9, verses 22 and 23. Romans 9, 22 and 23. Uh, These verses are in the middle of a paragraph, actually the middle of a whole chapter where Paul is dealing with the doctrine of election in in greater detail. And he says in verse 22 of Romans 9, "'What if God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath and make His power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And He did so to make known the riches of His glory upon vessels of mercy, which He prepared beforehand for glory.'" Um, What you have here clearly in verse 23 are people who are elect and prepared by God for glory. And there's a a contrast between them, verse 23, and those who go to destruction, verse 22. And it raises the question, well, if God prepared the people ahead of time for glory in verse 23, then when He uses the word prepared at the end of verse 22 for those who are destroyed, does that also mean He was preparing them for that? And the answer is no. Let me explain why, though. Let's talk about this. Uh, because uh, you could read verse 22 as God preparing people for destruction to show off His power. So, let me, let me deal with those two issues, His power and how they become prepared for destruction. God's power, originally displayed in creation, His raw power will be put on display again when He judges those who have rejected him, and when he casts fallen angels into the lake of fire, he will put his power on display again in judgment. But the Greek word we translate as "prepared" into verse twenty-two is in the reflexive voice. Uh, it's, in other words, it's passive, which means that God is not the subject doing the preparing. Uh, when we say something is reflexive, what it means is I'm doing an action, but I'm doing it to myself. Right? I. I do something actively, but then passively what I've done actively comes back on me. I'm I'm doing something to myself, that's the idea. And John MacArthur explains it this way in his commentary on Romans 9.22, the vessels of wrath have been prepared for destruction by their own rejection of God. It's not that God makes men sinful, but that He leaves them in their sin unless they repent of it and turn to His Son for deliverance. Now other Scriptures support this idea. God does not force people to be given over to the lusts of their hearts or degrading passions or depraved minds. That's the way Romans 1 describes people. Well, if you go and you examine Romans 1, God doesn't force people to be given over to that. Instead, Romans 1 portrays that as their choice. And after years of patiently calling people back, God finally allows people to go their own way. He, he, he quits striving with them and attempting to restrain them from their own self-destructive, self-defeating desires, and He lets them go their own way. Another passage, we don't have time for this because I know I'm trying to pack too much in one sermon, but if you go over to the end of Proverbs chapter 1… Uh, there's a passage that makes us slightly uncomfortable in Proverbs 1. At the end of the chapter, God is portrayed; he's personified as wisdom calling out in the streets, and he's promising that all who come to him can learn wisdom. Um, and he and he even promises that he will pour out his spirit on foolish people if they will just come and hear him. But after patiently waiting for them to respond. In the end, God finally mocks those people when their calamity comes because they refuse them. And if you go read the passage, you could ask this question. Are the people in Proverbs 1 destroyed because God predestined them for destruction? No. The passage says they're the people who hated knowledge. They're the ones who didn't choose the fear of the Lord. They're the ones who wouldn't accept any of the counsel He was given. They're not destroyed because God predestined them to that end, but because of their own waywardness. God hasn't predestined anybody for eternal judgment. What you have then in the doctrine of divine election is this. All mankind has rebelled against God uh, and deserves judgment, God is not obligated to save anybody or come up with any plan of redemption, and yet He did come up with a plan, and from the mass of guilty humanity, He chose to give mercy to some by giving them new hearts that very naturally respond to Him in faith and repentance. What do the rest get? Well, they get justice. And when do they get that justice? Well, they only receive justice after a lifetime of God giving them life and breath and every good thing to enjoy while they're rejecting Him. They receive justice only after a lifetime of God using the riches of His kindness and patience and forbearance to try and draw them back to repentance. They receive justice only after a lifetime of rebellion and ingratitude to God and refusing to give Him glory It's only after that that they receive the delayed justice that they deserve. So, you have two groups in the doctrine of election. The chosen receive mercy. Those who aren't chosen receive justice, but nobody receives injustice, and nobody can accuse God of being unjust or unfair. The doctrine of election is not unjust or unfair. However, it does raise a question about God's love. How does God's love for all mankind square with God choosing some and not all? After all, John 3:16 says, "For God so loved the world that He gave His only-begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life." Uh, the Greek word for world" in John 3:16 is "cosmos." And uh, it, I think it has 18 def- different definitions. It's a very versatile word in Greek, and it, at, at its heart and soul, it means an ordered system. In the situation in John 3.16, it means the ordered system of all of humanity, all mankind. God loves all mankind and gave up His Son for them. And His love for those who are not chosen is, I think, is actually a very beautiful picture of God's love freely given to an ungrateful enemy, to ungrateful enemies. Let me illustrate. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, You've heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. God demonstrates great love for all people. He gives life and breath and causes the sun to rise, even on those who hate him and reject him. He gives good gifts and sends rain on those who are unrighteous. Every single human being since Adam has been loved by God in great and profound ways, even though they deserved immediate judgment. Nobody can accuse God of being unloving. The issue is He loves those whom He has chosen with a special love, and the fact that He put His special love on them does not negate that He's been very loving to those who weren't chosen. I think it's entirely natural for Christians who've received God's saving grace to prefer that God would have chosen everybody. I admit, I'm in that camp. Honestly, I I look at these things and I'm like, "Uh, I still think He should have just chosen everybody. And you know what? I think that's very natural because we want other people to receive the grace we've received. I actually think it's probably a healthy thing that we wish that He had chosen everybody. But to that healthy desire, we also need to say this, Yes, it's good that you want to see God choose everybody. That's natural for the redeemed heart, but we have no right to demand that God do so or that He set it up that way. We must not demand He do so. He's not obligated to adopt anyone. He's already shown people an amazing amount of love in His common grace, and He's not obligated to give saving grace to anyone. Uh, if God was not pleased to choose all, we have to submit to His holy, wise, and just decision. The fact that God did choo- didn't choose all doesn't contradict His loving nature. He's already shown great love to all people. Now, I know that to this point, I haven't adequately answered just the questions I brought up, let alone answered other questions that this brings up that I, I'm not even going to be able to touch on. And so, what I want to do is I want to give you a couple, two recommendations for other resources that you could read or listen to that will go far beyond what I've preached in these two sermons and give you a better understanding of election. The first is a book. It's called Chosen by God by R.C. Sproul. Yes, it was the inspiration for my sermon title. Uh, And uh, here's the story behind it. By God's grace, I was saved at a young age, through the witness of my parents and the ministry of Awana. I was in elementary school. And uh, in high school, I was introduced to the doctrine of election, and I absolutely hated it. I fought against it for three years. I didn't like it until the summer before my sophomore year of college Uh, I was working up in the Sierra Nevada mountains at a camp, and I was studying the book of Romans for myself, and I also borrowed uh, the book Chosen by God by R.C. Sproul from a friend of mine. And in between the Apostle Paul's logic in Romans and also uh, R.C. Sproul answering a lot of the objections I had, uh, I went, in my own mind, from being a flaming Arminian to a happy Calvinist. Uh, I I became happy and contented with the doctrines of grace, and Chosen by God answers the questions I've tried to answer here at greater length and answers a number of other ones I haven't addressed, and uh, we have, I think, a couple copies left out in the foyer. Um, uh, but if they're gone and you want to buy them, uh, Chosen by God by R.C. Sproul, I highly recommend it. Uh, The second resource I want to recommend is Grace To You has a sermon series by John MacArthur called Chosen for eternity. It's a four part sermon series through 1 Peter, verses 1 and 2. And uh, oh, you know John MacArthur. He cross references to everywhere in scripture and goes more in depth than I go. And, and he'll actually cover some features of election that I'm not even going to cover in this three part series. And uh, I commend that series to you. It's an excellent, excellent series for understanding this. Well, I want to conclude by asking, posing, and then answering one final question. What are the practical results of believing in the doctrine of election? Well, last week I claimed that the doctrine of election has a way of killing pride, and it does so because the source of our adoption isn't anything in us. It's not a good trait in us or that God saw ahead of time that we would choose Him. Left to ourselves, we never would have chosen Him, Uh, But in eternity past, before the foundation of the world, He chose us. And that has a way of killing pride and the the things we'd like to commend ourselves to God with. I also taught last week that uh, the doctrine of election awakens praise. In the wake of killing pride, it awakens praise. And I say that because whenever you see the biblical authors bring up this doctrine… Uh, As soon as they get done describing it, they break out into a doxology of praise. That's actually what Paul is doing here in Ephesians 1. Actually, the whole thing from verse 3 all the way down through verse 14 is one long doxology of praise. Uh, I've taken you over to Romans 8. Same thing. As soon as he gets done uh, describing predestination, he breaks into this doxology of praise. If God is for us, then who could be against us? If God did this for us, what could possibly separate us from His love. And He goes into this big doxology. It leads to praise. And this is where my opening illustration from last week was actually a bit of a failure. If you remember last week, I was trying to be relatable at the beginning of the sermon by talking about uh, the joy we experience in being chosen for an athletic team, you know, trying out for the team and making it, or, or the joy that uh, spouses have when on their anniversary, they're both celebrating that the other person chose to marry them. And I do think in a way that those those uh, human joys are a dim reflection of God's choice of us. I I think in a way they can communicate it, but here's where the illustration falls flat. Here's where the illustration goes wrong. Uh, When you were chosen by the team, you were chosen for an obvious reason. You were more athletic than the other people who were cut. Uh, your spouse chose you for obvious reasons. They were attracted to you, and they enjoyed your company. But when God chose us, it wasn't anything in it. We weren't more virtuous than other people. Uh, we weren't more moral than them, and yet He chose to adopt us as His own sons and daughters when we were moral wretches and spiritual corpses, and He did so because He loved us. Uh, the third thing I would add is that the doctrine of election provides, I believe, comfort in trials. In Romans 8, 28, Paul says, and we know, that all, uh, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. But how do we know that, right? Paul says that, but how do we know that? What proof will Paul give us? Well, he says in verse 29, we know that God will do this for us because, verse 29, those whom He's for loved. He's predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom He's predestined, He also called, and these whom He's called, He's also justified, and these whom He's justified, He also glorified. Now, I love those verses. I actually, we went to them last week. I read them last week, and they teach us about what the English Reformers and the English Puritans called the golden chain of salvation, each link linking together to excuse me, to form an unbreakable chain of God's love for us. But what I want to point out to you about verses 29 and 30, which are all about predestination, what I want to point out to you about them is that Paul didn't just decide, hey, I should probably teach them about this doctrine. He brings up the whole idea of predestination to assure his readers that God really will Work all things together for our good, because those trials fit into God's larger plan for us. A plan that cannot be stopped. So what what happened is this: God's love for you started way back in eternity past, when He chose you to be a son or daughter. His love for you then sweeps through creation the creation of the world, sending His Son, your salvation, the day you believed, it sweeps into eternity future where God will glorify you and make you reflect perfectly the moral image of His Son, Jesus Christ. And because of that, you can rest assured that whatever happens to you, God will weave it together for good. God has already acted for your good, and He'll never fail to do you good, no matter what your circumstances look like. Uh, A good illustration in this might be Deuteronomy 8. Uh, In Deuteronomy 8, Moses, speaking of God's love for Israel, says this, "'God led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. He brought water for you out of the rock of Flint. In the wilderness He fed you manna which your fathers did not know, in order that He might humble you and test you.'" So, if you're in Christ, God chose you just as He chose the nation of Israel, and just like the nation of Israel, we need to admit we all need some humbling, we all need some testing. But that isn't all Moses says. Let let me read to you the last verse of that quote again. In the wilderness He fed you manna, which your fathers did not know, that He might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. When trials come our way, it's very natural and tempting to doubt God's love for us, but God really does love you. The fact that He chose you from eternity past guarantees that He will cause everything in your life to work together for good in order to do you good in the end. There's nothing He allows into your life that can separate you from His love or stop his, the inexorable march of His plan to glorify you. And because this plan started in eternity past and marches towards your glorification in heaven, you can have hope that He will work out difficult things for good here in this life. God is really, truly, committed to you. He made a choice for you in eternity past. He chose you to be His, and His eternal commitment to you can give you comfort in the middle of your own trials. Let's pray.